Thanks for meeting us at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious disease podcast by infectious disease physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rupina Purewall, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. For this episode, we welcome Carly Posniak, pharmacist with the Saskatoon Positive Living Program, to review game-changing, novel HIV antiretroviral Cabinuva. Welcome, Dr. Purewall. All right, so welcome to another episode of our podcast at the Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have a very special guest, Carly Posniak, who's a pharmacist that's worked with Positive Living Program since 2017 here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She is a part of an interdisciplinary team that provides care to people living with HIV and hepatitis C. Aside from providing care to her wonderful patients, she enjoys sharing her knowledge in this area by precepting pharmacy students and residents each year. She's also an active member of the Canadian HIV and Viral Hepatitis Pharmacist Network, CHAP, which is a group of pharmacists that collaborate together on various projects and publications. She's currently serving on the executive team as the CHAP secretary. So today she's joining us to talk a little bit about a new novel way that patients can receive their antiretroviral therapy for HIV in the form of injectables. So I want to welcome Carly today. And I actually know Carly very well because we work together uh, here in Saskatoon. So she's done a lot of work with uh, pediatrics as well um, as um, adult HIV. So thanks, Carly. Thank you for having me. Perfect. So I want to start off with, I think a lot of us clinicians aren't really aware of Cabinuva. So that's what we're talking about is our HIV injectable drug that was uh, recently uh, put on the market. So I think uh, for kind of a broader range of knowledge, because most of uh, clinicians, including myself, who is an infectious disease specialist, but don't haven't, I haven't dealt with Cabinuva much. So I think why don't we start off with just giving us a little bit of a background as in what is Cabinuva and when it was, when was it put on the market and some of the indications and contraindications that we should be aware of? For sure. Um, so as you said before, it is a brand new um, delivery form that we can use for patients in uh, antiretroviral therapy. Uh, it's given by intramuscular injection into the buttock region. So there's one injection per buttock. So there's basically two shots. Um, and it contains two drugs in it. Traditionally, we've used three antiretrovirals in a regimen. Uh, this one has two. And one of the meds is called cabotegravir. It's an integrase inhibitor. It's the newest in that class. And then the other medication we've had around for a while, it's called rilpivirine. And it's one of the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. So um, with this injection, because it's, it's given in the buttock region, it does have to be administered by a healthcare professional. So that can kind of limit, um, you know, patients can't just take this home at the moment and, and administer themselves. So it does, um, I guess, require a certain amount of coordination um, with a site that, that is able to provide it and administer it. Um, it was, it first came out um, that it could be given every month. And then later on, they 
be approved every two month administration as well. So um, I think this is a huge advance for antiretroviral therapy because we're starting to get into kind of more long acting formulations and just more options for patients to choose from um, instead of maybe like the daily grind of taking pills, um, you know, mm -hmm. someone might want to, to look at this route, so. Yeah, so I think uh, you touched on a really important topic there is, you know, I think the ease of taking injectables versus taking daily medications. And so I think that's probably what made me more excited about it, because um, I know, and we'll probably talk a little bit about eligibility, and I'm not sure how it is in the pediatric uh, world yet, but uh, you can probably give us some uh, kind of um, uh, information in regards to in, in regards to that, I'm sure today. Um, but I think really looking at, you know, quality of care for patients, um, I think, you know, managing HIV patients myself, I find that compliance is sometimes an issue, especially in our teenager groups, right? And then, um, I mean, life gets hard, right? So with COVID, I mean, a lot of people can't even get access to care. And I know here in Saskatchewan, HIV has really skyrocketed um, in terms of our numbers uh, uh, in turn, like during the pandemic and whether that was, it's probably multifactorial, but I think it's something um, that drugs like this may, may help us curb that um, in the near future. So, so what are, in terms of, um, kind of, you mentioned the true drugs, why don't we talk a little bit about the indication for it? So what is like the ideal patient, um, for this? And you can talk a little bit about eligibility if that would, if that, for us to clinicians to know kind of when to contact who. Right. Who, who are we targeting here? Um, yeah. Um, so, Presently, it's indicated for treating HIV-1 infection, and just in adults, though, ages 18 to 65. Um, and I can talk a little bit more um, in a minute as well. They do have a trial ongoing in 12 to 18-year-old patients. So I know as a, as a pediatric infectious disease physician, probably very interested in that cohort. So we can talk about that. Um, Basically, right now, it's sort of um, considered like a switch therapy. So the patients do have to be suppressed on antiretroviral therapy prior to initiating the injection. Um, so we're looking for, for the patient to have less than 50 copies. In the trials that looked at this um, this uh, form of antiretroviral therapy, most patients were actually suppressed for six months or longer um, before they actually initiated the injectable. Um, not to say that you have to do that, I guess, in practice, but it does kind of um, promote a sense of, you know, that the patient is stable, you know, getting their medications regularly and can kind of commit to something like this as well. Right. Um, so in the beginning, right now in Canada, um, in Europe, they've kind of taken the oral lead-in phase out. You, you, they've taken that off the product monographs. You don't have to do that. There is evidence um, to skip that. But right now in Canada, there is an oral lead-in phase with the oral form of cabotrigivir and rilpiprine that's given for four weeks. Um, and the only purpose of doing that was to assess if there was any hypersensitivity reactions. And uh, the EECS conference in the fall, they actually presented um, some information about that. And um, it has been found that there hasn't been any increase in, in hypersensitivity reactions. They've gone ahead in Europe anyway and removed that kind of, I guess you call restriction. Um, but in Canada, if you're kind of going with the label, it's basically giving the oral form of cabotegravir amylpivirine daily for four weeks. 
Now, um, in some of our patients, we have considered going kind of off-label, I guess you'd say, and, and if they're on a regimen, they're suppressed, just switching right from that to the injection. Yeah. And the reason for that um, is one, you're, you're getting extra kind of medication switches. So it kind of involves, you know, more follow-up, more blood work, potentially more confusion for the patient. Um, real pivoting orally does participate in a lot more drug interactions. So if anyone's on an, ant, you know, an antacid or something, an acid-reducing medication, you can compromise um, real pivoting there. And again, um, for real pivoting, it is required to be taken with a meal. So for some of our patients in Saskatchewan, for example, who have food security issues, it's probably not a good approach to take for them that you know to say you have to take this with a meal you know every time you take your oral meds you know that's just not feasible for some of our patients so there are a few I guess reasons why we might consider skipping that oral lead-in phase um, if we're wanting to get someone uh, going on the injectable and um, I guess the the perfect patient would probably be someone who's um, going to be able to commit to regular injection appointments and follow-up and has kind of shown a track record of being stably suppressed. Um, the biggest consideration, I guess, in that respect is that um, because this is an injectable medication, it has a really long PK tail on it. So once you have an injection of cat manuva, it can actually last in your system for up to 12 months. So if someone, you know, gets an injection and then decides, no, I'm not going to go with this, they are committed to taking oral medications thereafter for at least 12 months regularly uh, to prevent developing two class resistance with cabinuba. So um, integrase inhibitors plus the non-new class could be completely wiped out potentially. So that's definitely a consideration that, you know, something to talk about with patients when um, considering this as an option, um, just making sure they're aware of kind of these ins and outs before they, they commit to it, I guess you'd say. Right. And currently, is this a, this is a monthly injection, right? It is monthly. They have approved in Canada to give it every two months. Um, okay. I, I would say for our patients, I lean more towards doing the, the monthly injections to begin with. Just you can kind of build up that steady state. I think there'd be a little bit less risk of having any viral breakthrough. Um, and then maybe after, you know, six months or so, you could, if the patient wants to go to an every two month schedule, I'd probably consider it at that point. Um, I, you know, you can, you know, if the patient is suppressed, you can go right to the every two months, you know, administration schedule. But I, yeah, I personally kind of like to stick with the every month and, you know, see how that goes. Yeah. No, that's for sure. And in terms of, I know you mentioned, um, like some of the uh, contraindications or some of the things that we should think about when we're putting these patients mm -hmm. on these medications. Are there any comorbidities, like if they have liver dysfunction or renal dysfunction, anything like that, that we should be aware of as clinicians? For sure. Um, yeah. So if anyone has a creatinine clearance of less than 30 mils a minute, or if they're on dialysis, or if they have um, liver failure, so if they're at the child you see, level, I wouldn't consider um, cabinuva for those patients. Okay. Um, same with if they have a chronic hep B infection, cabotrigivir and ropivirine both don't provide um, any coverage for hep B, so you could have a flare. Um, in the trials, they did have that as an exclusion criteria, but I think there was one or two that somehow um, they weren't aware that the patient 
had hep B and made it in there, they had they had a flare. So, you know, definitely making sure you're aware of their hep B status and, and looking that ahead of time. And, you know, do you need to have tenofovir in their antiretroviral regimen to help control, control that? So, um, in terms of other contraindications, um, there were some treatment failures in the trials. So, um, and, and this is, you know, people who have perfect adherence, they're in a study, there's, you know, we're not having missed appointments, that kind of thing. And it kind of varied from one to 1.7% of a, of a failure rate in people who were taking it perfectly. And what they did find, um, they kind of looked into that a bit more to see, well, what was happening with those particular patients? Why was there a breakthrough? They found people that had um, played A or some type of A virus. Um, okay. That was a a factor. Now, we don't have a lot of that in North America. That's probably a, a subtype you'd see more in Russia. Um, so it's probably not something we'll run into kind of in our neck of the woods here. Um, the other thing they found, if, if the patient had a BMI that was greater than 30, and then also if they had any resistance-associated mutations, um, you know, that they tried to screen for that ahead of time, of course, but sometimes there's something that's lurking in, in the background. So it was kind of a combination of all three of those that seemed to predispose people to having um, confirmed virologic failures on this regimen. Uh, now, now, with the BMI alone, if that's the only factor um, in the mix, that, you know, that they're above 30, that didn't increase the risk of failure. So, so you can still consider patients with a BMI greater than 30 to be on this, this uh, medication, but. Um, and does the BMI kind of, um, I, I'm just going back to thinking about like other injectables or anything like that. When we talk about any um, injectable medications, it, does it relate to kind of the distribution, like the, the distribution of the drug? Um, is it, is it the certain, like, is it a certain site that we're we're injecting um, that that makes it difficult for those that have a BMI of greater than thirty. I think something that can come into it a little bit. They they presented in the fall that um, you know people with BMIs greater than thirty they recommend a longer needle. So yeah. it might be the fact that maybe it wasn't quite getting into the muscle in some of those folks too, or not completely. So that's something they do recommend. I think it's a two inch um, length of needle that they recommend you use. So um, with the Cabinuva package, there are needles and everything that come with it. But if you do need the longer length of needle, you'd have to get that ahead of time um, for yeah. the pain. So that's something that kind of came out with that. But um, yeah. yeah. All right. And I think, so uh, I think I'm understanding a lot about the indications and the contribution and really like who, what an eligible patient is, um, even whether you're taking care of this patient in the community setting or in the hospital, um, like obviously most of the HIV patients will be managed by subspecialists. And um, so they, this obviously information is really, really good for us too. Um, obviously for me, a little premature because it hasn't been approved in the pediatric population yet, but uh, definitely something to consider, especially when we're doing transition of care, right? So from uh, trans trans transferring patients over to the adult side, um, something to consider. So whenever a new drug comes out, we always think about costs and, you know, that's a important thing. Is it, is there a cost to the patient here? What type of coverage? And I guess like, we'll probably know a little bit more about the Canadian healthcare system um, in terms of that. And probably uh, if you can touch a little bit on that, that would be great. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, like you said, it, it's going to vary kind of where geographically the patient is located, but even in Canada from province to province, it can vary a little bit, but um, in Saskatchewan, for example, the, the provincial formulary did add it on and we do have universal antiretroviral drug coverage here. So that means any antiretroviral they add to our formulary, it'll be 100% covered to the patient, for the patient, no cost to the patient. Um, yeah. The other, I guess, thing to consider too, anyone who has NIHB coverage, um, so that's a federal program, so anyone who has treaty status and is eligible there for coverage, it's covered for them 100% as well. Um, so it kind of depends if the province you know, the, the patient is living in has decided to add it on to the formulary. Uh, I know a few provinces in Canada have added it already, but there's still a few more that are probably considering it. I think yeah. most probably will end up adding it um, because it was, um, I guess, nego negotiated to be kind of a similar price to other regimens. So it, it's really not going to cost more than kind of our traditional regimens, which is good. Um, you know, we don't have to feel bad about considering this as an option. It's not going to increase the, the cost of the healthcare system. Um, I think it's probably around the $1,500 mark per month, kind of in yeah. that range, which is sort of what the other regimens cost. Um, some provincial formularies are able to negotiate a special price, um, and so they might be able to get a better cost. Um, so, but that's confidential. I wouldn't be able to know what that, yeah. that price is. It's kind of a special agreement. Um, yeah. Okay. And then I guess, yeah. Um, in terms of, um, so, so now like obviously lots of physicians will see Cabanuva on like a, uh, on somebody's PIP or, um, you know, documentation of their medication list. Um, I guess for both like clinicians outside in the community, like family doctors, other pharmacists that may be working in the community that are not related to HIV. What are some of the things once the patient is on Cabinuva that we should all be looking for, like monitoring, is there any kind of ongoing lab work or is that something that's done pretty much by the HIV team that's administering it? Um, and maybe some touch on like some of the side effects that would be good because I think yeah. lots of questions will come around about on that as well. Yeah, generally the, the monitoring side, like the lab work should be done by, you know, whoever is prescribing this medication. Um, so the first thing you'd want to do is confirm that the patient is actually virally suppressed. Um, then you can go ahead and start them on the oral lead-in phase, um, if you like, for four weeks. And then at the end of that point, you would want to do another check for, for suppression before initiating the, the injectable. Um, okay. And then from there, I'd say uh, one month out from any kind of med change, including Cabinuba, we, we like to do a viral load and, and see where things are at. And then from there, it's basically like any other antiretroviral regimen. You can check every three to six months um, to see what where the, the viral load is sitting. Okay. Um, in terms of anything else specific to this medication, I'd probably make sure you're getting some LFTs done, checking their renal function just to make sure they're they're still kind of following, um, you know, in, in the range where you'd be able to use this medication um, and other kind of um, lab work like CBC, stuff like that, to kind of your usual HIV blood work that we would do. Um, so that's nice, it doesn't kind of, 
amount to kind of in the beginning there might be a little bit of extra blood work that happens but after that it should kind of follow the same course as as other regimens um, in terms of tolerability most patients reported that it was really well tolerated the single most high you know, like the highest um, side effect that people reported were injection site reactions okay uh, so which you know as could be expected with this um, a bit of, you know, a swelling or soreness. Um, and so I guess warning the patient about that ahead of time, because it's likely to happen. Um, other side effects that could occur, headache, um, nausea, you know, that sort of thing. But in general, I, I think most people tolerate quite well and most only reported injection site reaction. So that's kind of a, that's nice to know that it's, it is so well tolerated. So maybe if you have a patient that's um, we have the odd person that even though we've got really well tolerated oral options, they have mm -hmm. continuous nausea and they can't seem to tolerate an, an oral regimen. Maybe, you know, if you can get them suppressed, maybe this is an option, you know, just totally bypassing um, the oral route. That might be something that, you know, they might get a lot of benefit from. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and is there any absolute reason that there's a reaction or anything that was probably, I would say more probably in the clinical trials that they saw. Um, I'm not sure how much post-marketing surveillance has, has been um, kind of reported for those kind of side effects yet, but um, is there, is there like one of the main reasons where if I'm a clinician that's out in the community, I get a phone call, somebody's on Cabinuva and they have a reaction. I would probably tell them to go to the emergency department, but is there something that, you know, is life-threatening or anything like that, that would be worrisome in this case? I'd say if if you happen to have a patient that had had the kind of acutely flare up, that would be a situation. Um, if in your lab work you see that they have a detectable viral load, I'd, I'd probably jump on that and and switch them to something else. Um, preferably before, you know, early on before more mutations can kind of develop. Um, yeah, like any kind of intolerable adverse reactions. It, it is nice to see in the study they presented in the fall that they really didn't find there to be many hypersensitivity reactions to this medication. Okay. Um, and then I guess as well, if the patient became pregnant, I'd probably consider, you know, switching them to a regimen that has more safety data behind it. Um, right. Even though it does have kind of a long, you know, half-life and in the mm -hmm. body, I, I would still I would swap them to something else. Um, just that has a little bit more yeah. to it. So, yeah. Perfect. And then I just wanted to touch on the topic of the viral suppression that we're talking about. So I know when I was uh, reviewing the monograph myself uh, earlier this year, uh, you know, there's, there's a huge topic regarding, you know, what is, what is suppressible viral load? So is it less than 50 copies? Am I looking at, is it, you know, viral load not detected? Uh, I guess just for more of uh, my information. And if we don't have that clear cut data, that's completely fine too. Yeah. So in the trial, they put a fairly firm cutoff of less than 50 copies. So if you were 50 copies or above, they consider that, you know, not to be suppressed in these particular okay. trials. Um, I know in other um, uh, trials of antiretroviral therapy, sometimes they'll consider even up to 200 to be suppressed. But um, okay. for, for these, you know, trials, they, they put the cutoff at 50. So. Okay. Okay. That's good for us to know because 
And in terms of, I guess, getting those first initial kind of viral loads and then monitoring the viral loads, and you might've said this and I may, I may have um, missed that was once you're, once you're on Cabinuva, how frequently am I monitoring or how frequently are you guys monitoring the HIV viral load? Yeah, so um, we would do it one month post starting the okay. injection, and then if that looks good, we would maybe do it at the three month mark, and then every three to six months, kind of after that. Yeah, okay. if you got someone who's really stable on it, especially when you're coming close to a year out from starting them, I'd probably start doing it every six months, maybe even you know, eventually some people might even do it once a year, kind of thing. But um, okay. three to six months is probably generally what you're looking at. Okay. And I guess that like knowing the half-life and knowing that's in your system for that long, um, kind of is reassuring too. So, you know, so it actually, another kind of plus, uh, I guess, side of this would be that you don't have to do frequent lab work because right now a lot in our, at least in the pediatric population, kind of roughly every four months, they're having to get pokes for blood work and, and doing that from when you're a baby till, till your adult age is, is going to be, it's, it's a drawback for sure. So, yeah. 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 Okay. And then in terms of, so what's a clin can you give us some like clinical examples of patients, maybe even one example of a patient that you've guys, you've managed, um, obviously with confidentiality here, uh, taking that into consideration. Yes, actually that is, um, we recently started a patient, um, in December, on Cabinuva, and it was because of confidentiality concerns. So mm. she she was newly diagnosed. Um, really, at this point, I don't know if she ever will be, but at this point, isn't really wanting to share um, this information with others. She does live with other people in her house, so her concern yeah. was that she has a vial of, of oral antiretroviral sitting around that someone might see it, Google the name of it, and find out kind of what's going on. So um, she was quite quite interested in in trying this out because she's she's so concerned and even at in in the workplace she was worried about you know people finding out there as well so um so for her i think it's been a really good switch um you know and she was also a little bit concerned about forgetting to take her pills every day like she did really well in the first um bit and she got suppressed very quickly but i think long term she was thinking day to day super busy with other things, she could have some misses. So she kind of wanted a, you know, a less, I guess, involved kind of regimen and just yeah. get the shot once a month and, and forget about it until the next appointment. Okay. Oh, that's fair. Um, and then, so basically kind of the ideal or the most eligible patient is that someone who is virally suppressed, obviously for many years would be preferable, right? Cause then, you know, um, probably somebody who doesn't have too many comorbidities in terms of like the renal dysfunction that we talked about. Um, and then the ideal patient in, in a lot of our clinics would be the ones that are, we worry about non-compliance and that type of thing. So obviously more of a structured setting, they would get the injectable and then be able, be able to live their day-to-day life and don't really want to do blood work frequently and all that. So that's kind of what I'm understanding, which is a huge already <laughs> like significant advantages, right? So especially dealing with chronic conditions like HIV, like we're aware of, um, there are people it's, it's tough. Uh, like you don't have the ability to, as much as you want to live like your normal life, I think HIV medications have revolutionized that 
over the years and we're grateful for that um but definitely if we can get towards you know even decreasing all of those drawbacks of taking medications blood work etc i think we're we're winning so that's a yeah, yeah. moving towards improving, you know, just quality of life, not having yeah. to focus so much on, you know, taking pills every day. Um, right. I, I know some practitioners, um, the tendency with this injectable form is to, and to think of some of their patients that they've been struggling with adherence and thinking, okay, if we can get them on this, you know, then we can keep them suppressed because they only have to come in once a month to get the, the injection. But I, I would definitely say to caution around around that idea, um, just because you know they are going to have to be suppressed before you can actually even start the injection, and then um, you do have to be able to get a hold of the patient. They have to be reachable, um, so that involves you know having some you know access to a phone or a computer or something, um, mm -hmm. and so that you can follow up with the patient. And, and the real risk is if they aren't coming to their appointments you kind of have a seven day window where you can give the injection from your, okay. let's say January 10th as your treatment date, you know, every month on the 10th, you, you're supposed to come in for your, your um, injection appointment. Um, and then you have a bit of a seven day window to, to work with um, that you can still get the injection. Um, okay. If they go outside of that though, then you're starting to risk, you know, that two class resistance I talked about earlier, which mm -hmm. can really, limit your options um, you still have some nrti's to work with and the the protease inhibitors but you know who wants to be on a protease inhibitor anymore you don't have to be <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know, right you know. yeah so and you don't want to lose that integrase inhibitor class so i mean exactly. you know that those drugs are great so yeah 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 oh, that's fair okay and then in terms of um i guess uh if there's any like kind of other clinical evidence that you want to share with us today, that's, uh, th that would be helpful too. anything that, you know, we didn't touch on today. Yeah. Um, I'd say there is one trial going on called the MOCA trial and that is in the 12 to 18 year old, um, cohort. And it's going to be presented at the IES conference in July of this year. And there's going to be a special PEDS workshop that they're going to be presenting this at. And mostly, I think the information they'll be sharing is around the, the PK data, the safety, and the acceptability results. So I think um, that's definitely something that we'll all be looking forward to seeing um, because it, it, it seems to be we're always kind of limited in our options for, for our pediatric population. So any mm -hmm. kind of new um, things that kind of come along that might be options are, are welcome, I think. So, yeah, so. no, that's exciting. I'm uh, really, really excited to see where Cabanuva um, is going to take us, especially with HIV care here in Saskatchewan. Um, I think it's something that is important because we know that we, we've had an increase in the number of our cases, um, compliance definitely, because we have a lot of remote rural areas. Um, so access to healthcare is a challenge. Um, so I guess the last kind of thing I want to touch on is, it might be different in different centers, but here in Saskatchewan, uh, which you're probably more familiar with is, uh, if, is this something that can be done at different sites? So like is Regina and Saskatoon doing, um, kind of the injectables or is it something that the patient has to be referred to the ID group here in, in Saskatoon? Yeah, and so the Regina ID group is is using it there, and I think they have a pharmacy um, that they have a bit of a relationship set up with who is kind of trained about this medication um, and, and monitoring it and, and 
administering and everything like that. So they have something kind of set up there in Saskatoon that we just recently set up um, with a community pharmacy um, that will kind of offer patients, you know, if you technically in Saskatchewan, you can go anywhere to receive your antiretrovirals, but the fact is that this medication is a bit different and, and whoever's kind of involved in the administration of it is going to have to kind of have a special know-how um, you know, to get it to the patient. So we're kind of working on increasing um, locations that patients can access this. Um, we have, you know, started patients off with a first dose um, with our, our clinic staff. Um, but like you said, we're facing, you know, ever increasing numbers. Um, we don't have enough staff to kind of deal with the, the present situation. So to add in something like this, probably wouldn't be feasible for us. So I know a lot of other um, centers in Canada are kind of facing the same um, situation. Um, so with the CHAP group, it's, it's kind of been a hot topic and people are asking, how are you rolling it? How are you rolling this out? And, and what are you guys doing? And it sounds like a lot of people are looking to community programs. Um, some places have infusion clinics and so, so people who have, you know, RA and they're getting those uh, TNF inhibitors, they're kind right. of approaching those places too, because they kind of have beds and things set up um, for administering uh, medication there. So those are some um, some places. I know in Toronto, they've got a very special program where they offer um, the service to actually come to the patient's home and administer the injection. So that's okay. a pretty cool idea. Um, obviously, you have to have the resources there to, to do that. Um, that would be the ideal, you know, bring it right to the patient. But uh, yeah. You know, so, so that's kind of how we're, we're planning to roll it out, just kind of connecting with some community partners and um, making sure that they're kind of um, up to speed on, on this medication and, and how to obtain it and, and that awesome. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So lots of new exciting things. Uh, I think Cabanuva um, and, you know, since it's been on the market and uh, coming into formulary, uh, something that we'll probably see more, become more familiar with over the next few years here. So I think the underlying thing for, you know, cause we have a vast audience uh, across North America, but especially across Canada, um, I would say, you know, if there is a patient that is eligible, kind of what we talked about today, uh, reaching out to the infectious disease group uh, in that center, um, discussing with specific HIV pharmacists in that center would be, uh, would be a good approach, um, initial approach to, to see if they can get some more information, if that patient is eligible um, and that, and that type of thing. So I think, um, that gives me a lot of information for sure. I think I learned a lot during this episode and I really wanted to thank you, Carly, for, uh, taking the time out today to come on the podcast. Uh, it's, you know, an initiative that, uh, we started to help clinicians, pharmacists, family doctors, uh, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, microbiologists to really, uh, just bring out hot topics like Cabanuva because a lot of us don't have the time to sit and, you know, discuss all of these things with our pharmacists who are super educated on this topic compared to a lot of us. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, bringing it all together in, in one episode here uh, was, was something that I, I was looking forward to doing. And I think you did a fantastic job. So um, thank you so much uh, for educating us today and, uh, and we'll, uh, definitely, uh, I'll be in touch with you for sure, um, regarding future, um, updates on this and maybe, um, in the, in the next few months to years, we can, uh, kind of see what other case studies, case series, 
uh, or RCTs that come out of uh, using Cabinuba. For sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to share uh, info on new things that are coming out in this area. So that's yeah. great. Thanks. A special thanks to Carly for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Pirawal. Follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint and email us at the Canadian Breakpoint at gmail.com to suggest infectious disease topics or discussions you'd like to hear. We look forward to seeing you again at the Canadian Breakpoint. <laughs>